You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio, and this is a special, so, special you know. edition uh, this is of and you're listening to America's Web Radio, as a matter of fact, and we had Roger B. Uh, decided he had put a few words in and... Uh, from a podcast, but we we took care of Roger. Anyway, we have this is such a special occasion. Uh, one because we're coming up on a very important day. In fact, we got two important dates coming up. Uh, the eleventh is uh, Veterans Day, and I hope everybody will take the time to honor the veterans. And as I've said many many times. Some folks consider me a veteran. I, I have a hard time doing it. I served during the Vietnam era, but I did not serve in Vietnam. And uh, there are a lot of us out there that feel the same way. But anyway, our special guest is Orson George Swindle III and uh, Lieutenant Colonel, retired from the... Uh, toughest, I think, the toughest branch of the military, and that's the Marine Corps. And uh, he's on the line from Denver, Colorado. I, uh, so one of these days, we're going to get him on the line from across the table. And uh, when he when he comes into uh, Georgia, we're going to we're going to kidnap him and bring him up here. But uh, he Arson spent six years and four months. And folks, let me tell you, as as I have read over and over Orson's biography and quotes from his wife and on and on different things, I just I, I cringe and I and there was one time I was reading through some of your material, Orson, that uh I just I almost lost it. I, I what you all went through and let me say, welcome to America's Web Radio and giving your time and giving your service and now doing so much for veterans. And uh, welcome to America's Web Radio. Well, thank you very much, David. I tell you, it's always nice to talk to folks back in Georgia. As you as you know from my biography, I grew up uh, down in Camilla, Georgia, and went to Georgia Tech. And uh, we don't want to talk about the football team right now, but that's, <laughs> that'll improve. <laughs> well, sir, but, uh, what, what is the, uh, you know, farmers and football coaches next year? What's that? I'm sorry? Farmers and football coaches wait till next year. Right, right. Uh, it's probably best that we do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming on today. And uh, the the one thing after we're, we're never going to get all of it done today. So I'm I'm going to instead of do it on the post, I'm going to do it on the pre. And that's a. I hope that you will join us again and not and not so distant future. Uh, in fact, I believe you said that you were going to come out to the uh, opening of the. Uh, Jones Creek Wall of Healing. Well, I would, you know, I would. That's such a special thing, and I would uh, like to try to make that. I, you know, it's a matter of timing and scheduling. We have triplet granddaughter, triplet granddaughters who are now ten years old this this next week, and uh, their activities take up a, a great portion of our time. But 
I like to get back because my uh, stepmother uh, is there in uh, Atlanta and at Sandy Springs, as we talked about, and I'd like to get back a couple of times a year to see her, and maybe I can parlay it into a visit in March. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's going to be March the 28th, and uh, it... I, I want to leave everybody with this thought. Uh, Mike Mazel, who is the uh, president now of the Johns Creek Veterans Association here in uh, basically North Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, Mike and I were talking the other day, and I, I believe the story goes that he was at the wall in D.C., and there was a, a young man there with him, that had just etched the name, some name, on a sheet of paper, and he looked up at Mike and said, uh, I just met my father. Wow. Now, wow. If, that, if that doesn't get to your heart, nothing will. Yep, it's, uh, it's a touching thing. I've been there countless times and was there uh, the day before it opened up on a cold, wintry uh, November day. I believe it was in November, and... Uh, uh, and I was there by myself, and it was just uh, an awesome experience, to say the least. Well, let me throw out that uh, the gentleman that we're talking to, Orson Swindle, was indoctrinated, or inducted, I should say, not indoctrinated, but inducted into the Georgia Military Hall of Fame in the class of 2018, I believe is uh when you uh, were inducted, um, and like I said, I just I shiver at the thought of what you went through for six years and four months. That was being a a guest of the North Vietnam. Is that a right term? A guest, <laughs> uh, prisoner of the North Vietnamese. He was shot down over uh, North Vietnam. Uh, he was an F eight pilot for the Marine Corps. And uh, he was shot down and then uh, served six years and four months in what became known as the Hanoi Hilton. And uh, I'll just start the conversation by saying, was there anything in the whole operation that could be considered similar to a Hilton Hotel? Uh, not really. <laughs> as as, as uh, we like to say, we, we do have dark humor in our society and, and culture, and uh, that was just a play on words, of course, uh, started by some of the very first guys who were captured. I was number 144, if I remember correctly, and a lot, a lot of guys had gotten there before me, and God bless them all, because they set the standard for all of us to follow, and and uh, I probably survived because of those guys. But, uh, no, the Hanoi Hilton was uh, uh, definitely not meant to be praised. Uh, it, was a scum, it was a scummy place, uh, filthy, dirty. Uh, I, we lived in isolation for long periods of time, uh, lost considerable amounts of weight, and uh, suffered the abuse of the North Vietnamese that they tried to use us for propaganda. You know... I guess there's no way that the Geneva Convention can be forced on any country. If they're not going to abide by it, they're not going to abide by it. And are they going to sign on to it? And this is what 
happened in Vietnam, is that correct? That they never they never signed well, the Geneva Convention. They, they never signed uh, one aspect of it. Uh, I think it was Geneva Conventions of the late forties or forty nine. I think if my memory fades. But uh, they, first and foremost, the, the key to their whole uh, stated approach to us was that uh, we were not in a declared war, therefore we were not uh, afforded the privileges of a prisoner of war. Uh, they considered us criminals. In fact, uh, they would put it the blackest of criminals. <laughs> hmm. And uh, uh, the treatment was uh, appropriate to their approach to it and uh you know we were uh, there was no way we could uh just tell them the geneva convention uh tells you that you cannot do what you're doing that just led to more torture so it was a it was a hopeless case to argue that but we stood by the principles of the geneva convention in our conduct and we most uh, importantly stood by the principles of the code of conduct uh that we in the military follow and uh and our motto uh, was return with honor, and we knew it was going to be a long stay, and we never forgot that. Wow. I, uh, you know, I, I, I've got a, a uh, I don't know, we, we've been so fortunate. I want to back up just a little bit. Um, Colonel Rick White retired. Uh is the uh, executive director of the Georgia Military Hall of Fame, and Rick has done such a fantastic job of getting us guests, and and the subjects have just been incredible. And Rick, uh, I just want to tip my hat and and salute you, sir, for for what you've done, and we're going to continue to work with Rick and a lot of veterans. Uh, particularly Vietnam veterans, because of the way they were treated coming home. And uh, like you said, you know, what would it have been, and I guess this all started, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, with Korea, where we it was a policing action. Well, you know, maybe Chicago is a war zone and it's a policing action, but... Korea and Vietnam were no policing action. When you've got people shooting at you from all directions, that is war. And do you hold our government responsible for, to a degree, for for the treatment that you all, uh, because we we never declared Vietnam a war? Uh, I don't know that I've ever thought of putting it that way, but. Uh People, our people, our, our citizens need to pay attention to history. And if one looks at the history of warfare and national security and things of that nature, you will find that the last war we participated in, which we won, was World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the attitude of those in politics, and I guess you have to attribute some of this uh, to the bureaucracy that survives all politicians. Uh, they come and go in the bureaucracy, and Washington, D.C. is always around. And we quit trying to win wars uh, for some reason, and I would be hard-pressed to, to give you the, 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 re- the actual reason, because no one really knows, but... Uh, 
we seem to have adopted it within the State Department operation and those dealing in foreign relations and all the all the nonprofit think tanks that are uh, for for uh, uh, equity and and world affairs and <laughs> things of that nature seem to have decided the best way we work at war is to try to everybody come out a winner. Well, you know, uh, many people love him and many people hate him, but Douglas MacArthur was a brilliant strategician, and and he was a, a great uh, military leader. And he said simply, "There is no substitute for victory," and we forgot that somewhere along the way, right after World War II, and we've been in a quandary ever since. We don't seem to have the will to win wars. And uh, perhaps all of our politicians should take note of that, that if they're going to get us in one, they better make damn sure they got the American people behind them. And the inevitable mistake is we get into these things, they're ill-defined, there's no declaration of war, there's no national uh, rallying to support the war that we had in World War II. And I grew up in Camilla, Georgia, and, and, and remember so well World War II. I was seven, eight, nine years old. And uh, as a result, uh, people get frustrated. And then they start to turn against the strategy, and then we have the chaos that we live in constantly now. Uh, and it all started right after World War II. I guess uh, the closest thing we've had was uh, Storm and Norman, uh, Schwarzkopf, and uh, I think he... Well, he, you know, we, we've had many good leaders. I, I don't mean to de- denigrate our military leaders. Oh, no, no. I would never do yeah, that. Yeah, and, and, and General Schwarzkopf, I had the privilege of meeting him in all of all places in Saigon, and that's another story. <laughs> I was asked to go over there uh, in 92, I believe it was, and uh, I guess early 93, and uh, I went into a famous uh, rooftop bar there in Saigon, and, and there he was, and I went over and spoke to him and thanked him for what he had done in the military, but we have many great leaders. Uh, Marine Corps General uh, Joe, Joe Dunford, who just retired as mm-hmm. the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, just a remarkable leader, but our, our, our military is run by the civilians, and the civilian attitude in foreign policy and international relations comes from our State Department. And they all stay there as politicians come and go, and perhaps we could go to them and say, why do we do it this way? But the rule is, in my mind, the president should never get us involved unless he has a plan to win, a strategy to get out, and the support of the American people. Agreed, and uh, as we talked the other day, uh, one of the things that uh, I follow or I I think of all the time is that I don't, it's a disappointment to me that we have so few representatives and senators that ever served a minute in the military, and I think, I personally think, I go along with Israel, everybody should serve their country for some period of time, plus the fact that uh, I know it helped me grow up, and uh, it's helped a lot of folks over the time. Let's go on with uh, talking about Orson, because you you have such a incredible record, and, and then the time that... Uh, you told me something the other day that uh, just absolutely blew me away, and uh, that was that less people have come out of the prison camps, and particularly the Hanoi Hilton, 
with PTSD than on the battlefield, and and certainly on the battlefield, you're you're being shot at, and you're scared to death, and you're put in situations you don't know if the next step is going to blow you away or what. But I can't imagine that uh, the torture and the and the things that you all went through in in uh, prison wouldn't leave such deep scars when you came out and yet you've been more than willing to talk about it and uh and your your fact about that uh less prisoners have ptsd than others well i I think i told you i would try to get statistics but unfortunately with triplet granddaughters (laughs) uh i I got distracted (laughs) listen i remember as a general statement i was told uh here about a year ago that uh the numbers are quite astounding Uh, the ptsd uh, cases among us who are pow's there roughly i'm just going to say 600 of us that survived uh is considerably lower statistically than with the typical uh, member of the military who's been in combat. And you you cite a very good reason. If you're in the infantry and you're on the line of attack and one of your friends gets killed right beside of you, sometimes in a most horrible way, that could leave an impression on your mind that you will never get over. Uh, we, on the other hand, were tortured frequently and certainly abused. But over the course of the long period of incarceration, we started uh, being put in groups of four and five and then got bigger groups in these in cells, and we were able to talk to each other. And we talked through everything that had ever happened to us in prison. We talked of our frailties. We talked of our mistakes. We talked of our techniques of coping. uh, You name it, we talked about it. And I think, and I believe some of the psychiatrists that talked to us incessantly for the next (laughs) 34 years uh, have concluded that it was, to a great part, uh, that constant... Uh, dealing with our dilemma that probably strengthened us and gave us first an attitude of being positive. We knew we had to be positive to get out, and almost without exception to this day, one of the most uh, outstanding qualities of the people I know that I was in prison with is our attitude. We don't dwell on the negatives. We think about the positives. If we want to talk about the war and our experiences, we will tell you a couple of war stories, quote, quote, as we call it, where, you know, it, and it, you get an idea of the suffering. But we also tell you the funny things that happened to us and the stunts that we pulled uh, to try to get one small victory each day. And every day was a small victory. And because of that kind of attitude, I think we have come out of it much better than those who did not have the kind of experience we had. Well, we're coming up on serving or or having and celebrating two very important uh, dates. One is Veterans Day, the 11th. And then there's another holiday that, uh, I don't know, some guy made up or something. I I wouldn't. I read through this thing and I never heard of it, but 
This guy made up this thing called National Donut Day on November the 10th? <laughs> well, do, do you know anything that was, about that? <laughs> yeah, I, I can be spontaneous sometimes. I was taken into an interrogation in, in uh, old... But October of 1969, it basically was what we always referred to when they took you out and just had the interpreters uh, talk to you. It was an English lesson for them. But anyway, I'm engaged with this this idiot, and he, he tells me that uh, he starts giving me a history lesson about Vietnam. And I said, well, we have a great history, too. And he said, you don't have traditions. I said, yeah, we have a lot of traditions. You know, we have traditions that go back many, many years, and they're, they're, they're celebrated every year. And I'm I'm just talking. I have no plan. I didn't even know I was going out for the interrogation. And he said, well, name one. And I said, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? I said, oh, we got one coming up here in November, and it's called National Donut Day. And I to take a little side trip here and tell you that once, about once every six months, they would give us pieces of stale French bread that they apparently had dipped in grease and sprinkled a few bits of sugar on them, and we call those sticky buns, and it was a delight, because I, mean, I got down around 130, 20 pounds, and uh, we were skinny bunch guys, so anyway, I said, well, to this interrogator, I said, you know, you don't really have anything uh, like this holiday, it's called National Donut Day, and we <laughs> celebrated on November the 10th, which parenthetically, that's the Marine Corps birthday, and uh, I said, he said, well, what do you do? And then, anyway, I think the first thing he said, what is a donut? I said, well, you don't have anything. You don't have a donut in Vietnam. You don't know what you're missing. But I said, you do have this, this bread you give us once in a while. And I didn't call them sticky buns, but I said, it's, I described the bread and he, you know, he's taking notes on everything I say. So he said, well, what do you do on National Donut Day? And I described to him what one might who think of a, a Bavarian holiday. I had, I had us out in, in my description. I had us, the kids out dancing around a maypole and uh, dressed in lederhosen and drinking beer and having oompa bands and all that and he's writing all this stuff down <laughs> <laughs> so we go on and on and I, I, I mean he, he takes copious notes because that's one of his assignments I presume he's sitting there to talk to us and take notes on what we said and anyway after I go through this long spiel he uh, he sent me back to my cell, and I immediately got on the wall and started tapping through the walls. And I said, "Hey guys, you back me up on this one because I just strung a tail out here about a mile long, and they're surely going to check it." But anyway, uh, time goes by a few weeks, and lo and behold, it's November the tenth, and they would come around uh, and let us out to empty our toilet buckets. And once in a while, take a shower. And this time, they came around. The keys are jingling. They unlock all the padlocks on the door, which is another story. It's hilarious. But uh, they open the door, and standing there, they had a basket, a wicker-like basket, filled with this, these sticky buns, <laughs> we would call them. And everybody around the camp, we were at Sante, and they all knew it because we communicated. And all of a sudden, guys started whistling the Marine Corps hymn, and I'm given credit for getting the North Vietnamese to celebrate the Marine Corps birthday in 1969. <laughs> so that's the, the unlikely story, but it just popped in my mind as this idiot was asking me all these stupid questions, and I thought I'd give him something to write about. Well, I, I hope I'm giving that idiot challenge today with my stupid questions. But I, I, as you were talking, was there, 
Well, like you you said, every now and then they would give you the sticky buns or something as a as, as a treat or whatever. Right. Were there any of the guards that ever really, I don't want to say sympathized, but were, I, I don't know how. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Uh, it, they had some degree of compassion, and, and, and in my case, I don't recall ever being around one. Uh most of the ones that I was around were could be could be described with two, two one or two words or maybe both on stupid and brutal brutal and they were harsh cynical people who did exactly what they were told to do but uh, one of the camps had a young kid who was there just before they had a purge as we would call it when a couple of guys had tried to escape and they flailed with rubber hoses uh, a number of Americans to the point where it looked like they were going to die trying to get information about this escape and this kid reportedly who was a reasonably nice kid in fact I'd say he was probably a nice kid I, I, I didn't meet him but I saw him right before I left uh, he started crying in, in one of the torture rooms and he disappeared from camp and lo and behold about a week or so before we were to go home it's been announced that we're going to be released he shows up in camp and he went back to the cell which were these cells by that time we were in cells with about 40 people in them mm. <clears throat> and he went back to that group that he was out of the turnkey for many years before and uh had a big smile on his face and said you're going home so there is, was at least one that had compassion, but uh, I never was around one of them. Was it literally torture every day as far as uh, physical torture every day? Or like you said, there was the mental torture with the, or the, the no. interpreter that was trying to get her in English or do whatever with English. But No, we were not tortured every day other than, you know, the average person today listening to this would probably consider what went through torture but um, you know the, the the degradation the 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 horrible filthy conditions we lived in the the hunger uh this it illnesses sickness uh boils uh all sorts of skin infections uh, you know all sorts of things just living in filth that might be considered torture by most but that's sure. not what we talked about and I, I, people have asked me say what was it like being in prison it's oh. sort of like being a fighter pilot it's hours and hours of boredom occasionally interrupted by a few seconds of stark <laughs> terror and that's about the way it was when they started a purge uh trying to get information from us or trying to break up our communications it got very very difficult to say the least i mean just incredible pain uh, putting us in in uh, ropes tourniquets stretching arms mm. behind our backs hanging us up by thumbs uh, beatings uh, you, you know what people really would think of would be torture and they did lots of that but it was certainly not day to day none of us would have survived I was going to ask too when you were talking about um, communications between the prisoners I would assume it wasn't exactly the purest of Morris code. So, how did you all develop your own code and and code for different words and so forth? Well, there's an incredible book that's just been published. I had the privilege of helping my dear friend uh, Smitty Harris, an Air Force Colonel retired, and him, he and his wife have written a book about their individual experiences. And the title of the book is called. 
TAPCODE, T-A-P-C-O-D-E. And it's about his experience. He was one of the very first uh, pilots to be shot down and captured, and he was there over eight years. And uh, I would encourage everybody to buy a copy of Smitty Harris's book, Tap Code. It's just remarkable, and it tells of the painful experience of the wives not knowing if their husbands were alive and so forth. But anyway, uh, Smitty was in, as a young junior officer in the Air Force uh, before Vietnam. He had been told by an instructor at a survival school the Air Force had of a code that they used in one of the prisons. I believe it was uh, Sing Sing, but I'm not sure of that. Uh, in which uh, the prisoners, by tapping on pipes that ran from cell to cell, were able to communicate with each other. And he spread the word around about that tap code, and that's what we began using, and that was, as I describe it, that was our lifeblood. Communications was the most important single thing I can imagine. Had we not been able to communicate, I don't know how we could have survived, because most of the time in the early uh, days and months and weeks of uh, your captivity, you were in isolation. And when you're all by yourself in that environment and they're beating 11 daylights out of you, it is very demoralizing. And all of a sudden, uh, people would start communicating with you in different ways. The ones that were there that had the tap code would pass it along to us, and we would slowly learn how to use it, and then we'd be tapping through walls from that point on until we came home. So uh, communications was remarkable, and we had countless ways that we communicated, all seemingly uh, related to the tap code and how we could use it. And uh, I can elaborate on that if you wish. Uh, we need to take a quick break. Uh, we're with Lieutenant Colonel Retired Orson Swindle III from Camellia, Georgia, as a matter of fact. And But the most important, not most important, but one of the important things is he's also in the Georgia Military Hall of Fame, and we want to salute them all the time. And I was given permission to announce that March the 28th will be, as it stands right now, subject to change with notice. But March the 28th, the unveiling and the... Everybody will be invited to John's Creek for the healing wall. It's the wall that's uh, 50% the size of the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., that traveled all over the United States. And um, John's Creek, Georgia, bought it, and it's being installed right now, and it is going to be something to... Uh, they'll have an honor guard and... They're inviting everybody out, and as I said, right now it's going to be it's scheduled for March the 28th, and uh, we've got folks like uh, Arson that are going to try to attend, but we've got a lot of other folks. Uh, Georgia has been blessed with so many heroes and so many. I, I think some of it comes from the way that kids in Georgia grow up, and that's that uh, they knew the word work and they knew the the word honor the flag and honor the country and uh so with that being said i'm gonna uh we're gonna play a couple of ads and we'll be back right after this 
If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual, family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on America's Web Radio, and David's pick with a very special guest, uh, Arson Swindle. And he's from, I'm going to let you say it so I don't get in trouble again. Camilla, like in vanilla. (laughs) (laughs) And I know everybody in in Georgia Georgia knows what a vanilla wafer is because we all grew up on banana pudding. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, man, would I love some right now. I'd I'd be eating it on the side. But anyway, Camilla, just like vanilla. Okay. And um, had you always wanted to go in the military and be a pilot or... Well, I uh, I grew up during World War II, David, and as I said, I was seven, eight, nine years old, and Lord knows we kids in a little town of Camilla, which probably had 2,200 people maybe at that time, uh, we marched all over the neighborhood following our troops in Europe. You know, Back in those days, they'd print the maps of the front lines and the islands and everything, and we knew everything about it. We kept up with it as kids. And my father made the invasion on Iwo Jima, which in itself is one of the most heroic battles ever fought by Americans, and he survived it. And uh, so I grew up with that kind of background, and everybody in the community was involved in the war effort. We grew victory gardens. We collected trash, paper, uh, metal, all for the war effort. We, we sacrificed. There was rationing of gasoline and tires and so forth. We don't do that anymore. And, and, and victory plates, and victory plates, correct? Pardon me? And victory plates. You cleaned your plate. You didn't leave anything left on your plate because you wanted to That's have exactly a victory exactly right. Plate. You know, we didn't have everything that we have now. We're spoiled people, to say the least. But everybody was in the war, so it was natural to be... Uh, know about the military, to think about it. Uh, I went to Georgia Tech. I, I, w- I, I, I had a great time at Georgia Tech. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't study it very hard, but anyway, I got through. I'm not sure I can get in today, but I love Georgia Tech, and uh, 
but when I graduated, didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, well, I actually didn't know what I wanted to do before I graduated. So I joined the Marine Corps commissioning program and came in the Marine Corps with the intention of going to flight school. And the rest is history, so to speak. But it was a, you know, we ROTC was mandatory back in those days for two years. It was a different world, a different time. And we were proud of our military and what we had accomplished in World War II. You know, we often read accounts of World War II and you think we won it on our own. Well, that's, of course, nonsense. Uh, other countries suffered greatly, far more greatly than we did, because we have this wonderful geographical uh, benefit. We're on an island. Mm-hmm. And in Europe, they crossed their national borders constantly, fighting each other and have from throughout history. But... Uh, I went to flight school. I loved being in the Marine Corps and uh, just had a misfortunate uh, incident occur in my life, which cost me. I was there. Give me an idea of time. My son lives down in Albany. When I left home, he had just turned 11. I mean, just turned four. When I came home, he had just turned uh, 11. So I was gone from four to 11 in his life. And thank God we have these grandchildren that uh, have shown me what it's like to watch a kid grow up from from three years old to 11 years old. Wow. What a story. What a story. Um, you know, the obviously, and I think you and I talked a little bit about it. Well, we did talk about it, uh, uh, the electronics today. But I, I think back, my dad served in World War II, and... Uh, I was uh, about nine months in a day after he returned from uh, World War II, but um, so I, you know, never suffered uh, the the agony that my mother or my older sister did with communications, and it was, you know, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks in between times that Dad might get a letter wherever he happened to be. And he would immediately write back, but the the length of time for communications and mail call and all this was just incredible. And yet, uh, things have changed so much that uh, you know my my younger son that's uh, in the Air Force in uh, Germany, we communicate via Messenger or Skype almost weekly. So it's it's like yes, he's gone, and I haven't seen him in well over a year in person. But I see him every week. Yep. Well, you know, uh, David, one of the most profound uh, descriptions of how it was when the American prisoners were released from Japan after World War II, the vast, vast, vast majority of them came home by ship, an ocean-going ship, and they weren't very fast in those days. We were released, I was released on the 4th of March of 1973, and I was at the Naval Hospital in Jacksonville on the 7th of March, three days later. Actually, we picked up a day there, so in essence, it was four days. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. Oh. And you're right. We're we're in instant communications today with anybody we want to be in touch with. Now let's go back to uh, the Hilton, uh, Hanoi Hilton, and uh, I think our audience would probably stone me if I didn't ask about John McCain 
and you were there while he was there, or he was there while you were there. Yeah, John was shot down a year after I was, and I, of course, knew who he was. I had never met him. Uh, we were both naval aviators. He of uh, prestigious McCain family of World War II fame. Uh, and uh, we wound up sleeping side by side the last, about the last two years of the war, about 20 months, I think. And, of course, we came to know each other quite well. Uh, John was a dear friend. Uh, we didn't always agree on things, and we would have really interesting arguments, <laughs> to say the least. But, you know, invariably after our uh, vociferous arguments, and, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a big shot senator, and I was a nobody, but I, I didn't let that bother me. You know, I'd go right at him. And we would wind up, after we have these arguments, about politics and policy, generally speaking, uh, in fact, that's about the only thing we ever argued about. Uh, we would laugh and have a friendship was a strong friendship, and I loved him like a brother. I didn't agree with him all the time, and uh, but he was a great American. He, uh, you know, being a public figure as he was, there are just countless rumors that get filtered around the, uh, the internet that were all garbage. I'm, I'm trying to control what words I use here. But uh, he was a great American. Uh, he is owed a debt of gratitude for his dedication to his country. He loved this country above all other things. And he wanted to do the right thing in every aspect of his public life. And uh, I think he pretty well accomplished that. Although, as I said, I disagree with him on some things. But, you know, reasonable people can disagree and still have close friendships. Sure. He uh, now he, he he was was he tortured more than others because of his father or because of his he, he had no position when he was shot down other than being a pilot. But uh, well, he, he, no, we were all treated pretty much the same. I mean, they treated it. They realized uh, he he was almost dead when they captured him. He he, he was. He was he was very close to dying, and uh, they realized with all the publicity around his getting shot down in international uh, you know media, which they follow all that stuff. They realized all of a sudden who they had, so they began to give him some medical attention and sort of help uh, nurse him back to health, or at least so that he'd survive. <laughs> so they could and, torture him. Pardon me. They nursed him back to health so they could torture him? Yeah, essentially that's what a, Well, you know, they kept saying, we'd like to send you home. And John said, I'm not going home until the people in front of me go home. And he was adamant about that. And they said, well, too bad for you, McCain. It will be very bad for you because you have this attitude. And they started torturing him like everybody else. And he went through some brutal torture. And uh, he, he, he did his best, as we all did. And that uh, did his best is a statement. Uh, it varies for every single individual. You and I would be different in how we resisted and how well we resisted. And it's not a case of how well. It's mainly how long could you resist. We all did our best. Admiral Stockdale, who was a dear friend and another Naval Academy graduate and our leader in Hanoi, just, you know, through the course of the, of the ensuing years, months and years, put out policy said, you resist to the best of your ability, and every damn one of us would 
few exceptions did exactly that and John McCain did it in spades he was great he resisted he's a great American he's a great patriot he loves the country and I dare say that anyone who would choose to try to label him as not being as tough as the rest of us doesn't know what they're talking about and I would like to see that person go through what John McCain went through and they'd have a little different appreciation you got me scared to death and I'm just sitting here I'm sorry. You've got me scared to death, and I'm just sitting here. Well, you know, terror was a great part of our lives because, you know, uh, when we fly missions, we knew we were going to probably get shot at, but we being the cocky pilots that we were, we were convinced <laughs> that we were invincible when we'd come back. When you went into an interrogation in North Vietnam, in Hanoi, you could almost rest assured, depending on the circumstances of the times, you know, was there a lot of stress going on, was there bombing, that you were very likely going to be asked to do something that you knew you could not do. That is, participate in propaganda or something of that nature. So you knew you were going to say no, and you knew for sure if you said no, they were going to torture you. So when you went into this 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 alter into this uh this circumstance you knew the odds are you're going to get tortured and you had already been through torture and you torture and you knew that was extremely painful and terrorizing and that's what you faced we live with that constantly if we stepped out of line in any way they would be all over us and pretty soon we're in the ropes or we're being hung up by our thumbs or we're being beaten that's a pretty terrifying world to live in, but that's what we lived in. Was there any outside communications like with your family during the time, or was that all shut off as well? Well, some people did. Some of the early guys, because they were unique, they got it, they got to write a little bit. I, I didn't. I was not permitted to write home until Christmas of nineteen seventy. I'm trying to. I'm thinking here. Some talking bad habit. Uh, it was 1970, I believe. 1970. No, 1970. Christmas 1970. I was shot down in November of 1966. My family wasn't sure I was even alive. I was listed as presumed captured, and that was about it. They got no communication from me. And my former wife did a beautiful job with our, our son who I mentioned earlier was just full when I left home and she wrote me hundreds of letters I never got any of them wow. and then in, shortly after Christmas of 1970 they called me in for an interrogation and gave me a letter from her it had a picture and the letter was five, uh, four years old if I remember correctly and the picture was four years old mm. but they would let me keep it so that's uh, and then I got a couple more letters right before we, we were released so uh, uh, I was not fortunate to have a, 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 a stream of communications going, but some were, and it had nothing to do with anything other than the circumstance of them being there first, or whatever the circumstances were. It had nothing to do with their conduct, where their conduct was the code of conduct is our rule for life here until we go home. This is the way we live, and everybody did it with, like I said, a couple of exceptions. What, did you all... In your communications within within the Hanoi Hilton, did you feel like that you'd been deserted, or did you feel like, well, I think the government's doing everything they can to get us out of here? 
Well, you know, we Everett Alvarez was there almost nine years. Floyd Thompson, a special forces officer captured in the South, was there over nine years. Uh, that had never happened in American history. And most assuredly, uh, we went through times of incredible, uh, we'd go right up to the precipice of depression, you know. What in the hell's going on? Why can't we win a war? Why can't we end this war? You know, all those doubts and thoughts would go through our minds. And then we, through our communication system, we helped each other get through those things. That's a lot of what the psychiatrists were fascinated by, how we overcame those natural uh, emotions and fears. And we didn't know because it had no real communication. We got propaganda, uh, new guys being shot down. As soon as we got information from them, we'd pass around all the camps. But, uh, I mean, think about living for six and seven and eight and nine years with no good news. Nothing good, nothing positive. It was up to us to cope with those emotions and that emotional uh, pressure. And we did a pretty darn good job of it. But uh, you did an incredible job of it. It's just amazing. Were there many? Were there many suicides? And that's a terrible thing to ask. But well, you know, in 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 a couple of cases, I I don't. I'm trying to think if I actually live with anybody. But I've heard stories of guys saying they they attempted suicide. Uh, and a lot of us. I must confess, a lot of us probably would have taken death than go through what we went through. That's maybe hard for people to come. In fact, I know it's hard for people to comprehend. But the pain gets so bad, you'd sooner die than have any more of it. Mm. No, I, I, the Vietnamese would tell you, dying is too easy for you. We will make you suffer. They were a vicious bunch of bastards. Do you, well, you said you've been back, so do you think there's any real reconciliation between the two at this point? I have to say that again, please. Well, uh, no, I, I was, and I, and it's a really dumb question because they're open. and There, there are no dumb questions, please. <laughs> well, you've been back, and uh, like you said, you met uh, Schwarzkopf there and, and General Schwarzkopf. Um, but, and my son's been there, uh, either once or twice, and, uh, are we really over it? Oh, in my case, yeah, it, it never enters my mind. It just, I mean, it's always there, you know, people know who I am, and, 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 uh, and, and they, they know the story, uh, to a great extent, in many cases, and, uh, but I never think of it. Life is too good. I, I'll be damned if I'm going to sit around and dwell on something that happened 50 years ago that I have no control over changing and it's not going to do a damn bit of good to think about it other than just to, I, I'll put it this way. I went through a bad time. I am the most blessed person you've probably ever talked to. I never have a bad day. That's fantastic. And that may sound a little stupid, but I really, when you really get down to it, any problems that I have usually are, are, are self-induced <laughs> mistakes, but 
I don't have bad days. I thank God every morning when I wake up that first I woke up. Secondly, look at all the blessings that I have. I've been through a lot of heartache in my life, and I've caused a lot of heartache in my life. And I pray to God and the people that I might have offended that they will forgive me. But I have had a great life, and I'm extremely fortunate. I was raised by my grandmother and great aunt. My mother and father divorced her in World War II. And I decided I wasn't going to leave Camilla, Georgia, and I grew up with my friends, and I still see them. I stay in touch with them. And my grandmother and great aunt had passed away. My stepmother's still living. She's 92, and she's the love of my life. She's a wonderful person. And I just revel in going to Atlanta to see her. And uh, I could not be more blessed. You, you brought something up that I that I'd meant to ask before. Faith and the did they did they let you have Bibles or was no. there any? No, that we we were not permitted to assemble. As if they, you know, they, they they would panic. They saw one of us stand up talking to the others sitting down, because that reflected something that is part of their society and communist indoctrination, where one person, usually one person, standing up talking to another group of people, are trying to get them to do something, and they didn't understand our culture. Uh, they would not permit us to worship, although we did anyway. And uh, for instance, in the early days early years, I should say, every Sunday, we had a ritual we'd go through. We were, most of us, living in in uh, isolation ourselves or with one or two other people in the cell with us. We would stand up, uh, one of the leaders in the, in the building, or the leader in the building, would cough the letter C for church in our tap code. And we would all stand up, we'd face home, we'd say the Lord's Prayer, and the 23rd Psalm and the Pledge of Allegiance, and that was our church service. And we were all isolated from one another, but everybody did that. And our faith was incredibly strong. We were mostly Christian, a few people of Jewish faith, and a couple who claimed to be atheists, although I've never, I've never been able to comprehend atheism in that I can't believe in being so independent that I would rule out the possibility of something bigger than me. But, uh, you know, faith is a great part of our American history. I just finished reading the book Mayflower by Nathaniel Philbrick. If you haven't read it, read it. It's just an incredible story about hardship, things that average American couldn't comprehend today. And I know damn well not 5% of us could do what they did. But about great faith, by flaws, mistakes, harsh treatment failures, but we are people of faith, notwithstanding the current statistics that are floating around, and we better get serious about our faith, because they're coming for us, and we better be ready. When you say they, the Muslims? Uh, I think the, the, the people who don't like our freedoms and our democracy, and that's a large group of people, you know, the communist mm-hmm. movement is still alive and well. Oh, yeah. The Muslim, the Muslim faith, we're increasing, uh, the Muslim population in the United States is increasing at an alarming rate. And uh, I just read where, you know, uh, state of Virginia just elected a Muslim to uh, uh, one of the county county governments. 
uh, you know, there are encroachments happening with our society that we simply aren't paying attention to. I can't, it'd be hard for me to fathom us not caring about protecting this blessed country we have, even with its flaws, and God knows there have been a lot of flaws, but we better get serious. Oh, it won't, we will be the ones that lose what our founding fathers gave us. And that would be a tragedy, and it just angers the living hell out of me when I think of the country my granddaughters will, you know, receive where we screwed up and didn't pass along the greatness of our country. Well, you know, the one one thing, and, and I'm certainly guilty of, and anybody that knows me would will be out there yelling, but is patience and the one thing that our enemies all of them have and the Vietnamese the Vietnam uh, the guards I'm sure you'll attest to this as well they have patience if they don't get it out of you today they'll get it out of you tomorrow (laughs) and our, our enemies which are and you hit it on the head. The communist communism is a ala- is alive and well, and oh, yes. in the United States. And, well, to uh, your point about they're patient in their in their effort. I was in a ter- an interrogation once, and the interrogator says, looked at me, and says, "I've been there four years. You know, no communication with anybody. We're nothing but propaganda." He says. When do you think the war will be over? And I said, hell, I have no idea. <laughs> Why would you even ask that question? I'd fire back at him, and, and he said, uh, well, I just want to know your opinion. I said, well, I have no opinion. When do you think the war will be over? And he thought for a minute, and he said, soon. Well, I perked up immediately when he, when he, when he said soon, because I said, well, I haven't heard anything like that for quite some time. I said, did you say soon? He said, yes. I said, when he said, "Well, not this year or next year or the next, but soon." <laughs> that makes your point. I think it's yeah, exactly. they are patient. And see, I study their philosophy, their strategy. I read history all the time. But the average person doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> We're too wrapped up in, you know, smartphones and TV and music and sports. My God, I think our religion is sports. You know, we, we're just obsessed with sports. Well, hell, I'm a, I'm a Georgia Tech fan. I've grown accustomed to losing. So <laughs> <laughs> well, that's... my Georgia friends have a little more difficult time than I do. But, you know, people need to understand we are blessed but as President Reagan said, reminded us, freedom is only one generation away from disappearing. And that generation is us. Are we going to let it go? With that, we've got to end the conversation. I, If that didn't give some folks something to think about uh, the next few days, I don't know what will. I will ask... Um, Arson, will you come back and be on our show, either in person or again over the telephone? I'd be more than happy to do it, uh, David. And uh, you keep me posted on the event there, twenty eighth March, and yes, uh, I will do my utmost to time my my travel so that I'm back in Atlanta for for that event. It's a, the wall is a very special thing, and it means different things to different people. It's great sadness. It's great admiration. Uh, and 
it's a good way to, to remember the price of freedom. Yes, sir. And uh, I appreciate very much the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. Well, you and I are going to stay in contact and uh, for sure. And uh, I just, like you feel blessed, I feel blessed. And, again, I want to thank Rick White for getting us together and all the other great guests that he's uh, introduced the station to and the public to in many ways. So thank you. Have a great weekend. And uh, we'll be chatting real soon. And, thank you and, much, and David. when I say real soon, that's not in a couple of years. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> All right. Take care, sir. Yes, sir. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.